that point, it's not about product market fit. It's really around market product fit. And the reason why I say it that way is that but without a market, there's really no need for your product. And the reason that 85% of all uh, products fail, whether they're part of a, an existing company or they're a startup, is they fail due to no market need. Welcome to the CMO Stories Podcast, brought to you by Fortella. This podcast series features marketing executives explaining how they're upending the fundamental approach to marketing to get above leads and tactics and instead focus on revenue goals. And now, on with our show. Let's say that you are the CMO or CRO at a high growth company that has had a successful product in the market and has achieved multiple quarters of growth. You just hit 10 million in annual revenue. How do you go from 10 million to 100 million? To answer this question, I turn to Bruce Cleveland. Bruce is the chief marketing officer at C3 AI, a leading enterprise AI software provider for accelerating digital transformation. Previously, Bruce worked as a general partner at two leading Silicon Valley venture capital firms, Wildcat Venture Partners and Interwest Partners. He was a first investor and a board member of Marketo, which held its IPO in 2013 and was later acquired by Adobe for 4.75 billion. He was also an early stage investor in other notable companies, uh, including C3.ai, but Doximity, Velocity, Workday, and my previous company, Get Satisfaction. Bruce has held senior executive roles in engineering, product, and marketing at Apple, AT&T, Oracle, and Siebel Systems. He's also the author of the book, Traversing the Traction Gap, that provides a prescriptive how-to guide for startups to succeed. So he knows one or two things about what companies need to do to achieve predictable growth, crucially from a CMO perspective. Here's Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Hey, how are you doing, Rahul? So you are the CMO of C3 AI. For those people who may not be familiar with C3 AI, tell us what the company does. Yeah, um, so we are a public software company that traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, we are and describe ourselves as the enterprise AI application software company, um, primarily targeting the acceleration of digital transformation um, for typically large companies um, and organizations. Uh, we have a family of fully integrated software products that includes a platform that we call the C3 AI Suite. Um, this is designed to create bespoke enterprise AI applications uh, for developing, deploying, and operating large-scale solutions for these companies. Um, we also, on top of that, have built a suite of different uh, industry-specific SaaS AI applications that vary based upon industry. Um, some are cross-industry, some are industry-specific, but effectively they're, they're um, commercial off-the-shelf software applications that can be modified based upon the company. And then finally, we offer a couple of pretty interesting applications that are, that are relatively new. Uh, one's our C3 AI CRM product and applications, which is a suite of these industry-specific CRM apps um, that use AI 
to provide things such as precision sales forecasting, next best offer churn, and a variety of other a variety of other um, use cases, along with a, a no code um, AI solution that we call C3 AI X Machina. And this particular application is designed for specifically for anybody, and more specifically, data science people who are not data scientists. Um, who need to be able to solve predictive problems. Um, effectively, what's the what's the distinguishing characteristic of our of our platform offer and the rest of the offerings? It's that it's all built upon an extensible, open, model-driven architecture uh, that makes it a lot easier to develop these very complex solutions. Which is one of the reasons why 85% of the projects, AI projects that are out there, never see their way into production. And uh, we have just the opposite uh, metric around 85, 90% of the, of the projects that we undertake um, are currently in production or rapidly um, getting into production. So that's who we are and what we do. Yeah, sounds really interesting. Very category defining, which we're gonna talk about that in a minute. But C3i was founded by Silicon Valley legend, Tom Siebel. I had a pleasure of working with him and to, you know, he founded the company in 2009, you joined the company in 2019, when the company was already doing about 100 million in annual revenue, and C3 AI went IPO, as you said earlier, you know, in in December of 2020, is now, by most analysts, uh, you know, projected to do almost 250 million dollars in revenues. Yeah, that's that's remarkable growth, almost hockey stick like. Uh, what do you think has been the secret to its recent success? And yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, there's no real you know, pat answers to these things. It's, you know, a combination of, of, um, of elements that have, that have come together. Um, I actually was at Tom's home along with 20 or 30 other people when we originally put the company together. And that was back in December of 2008. And the company was actually formally created in January of 2009. Um, I served on the advisory board for four or five, six years. And then, um, and then eventually decided to, I had been in venture capital uh, for, well, it turns out about 14, 15 years. And a, a couple of years ago, decided that I was going to leave venture capital and um, end my career the way it began really, which is with Tom um, and joined uh, C3AI as the chief marketing officer. So I actually have been involved with the company for quite some time and have seen it go through a number of different transitions. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the original um, you know, people would say these are um, pivots, but I think what they really are were um, Tom's interpretation of what where the market was going. And so we really transformed the company itself to address those particular opportunities in the market. So the one of the secrets, I think, has been Tom's ability to be data-driven, market-driven, and identify the fact that something big was happening. I mean, I've been in this industry, you know, more than 40 years. And um, the, I'd say that this notion of digital transformation is probably the biggest technology transition that I've been through in those four decades. And I think it was something that Tom began to recognize as he spoke with a variety of different people around the world with respect to what their key issues were. He kept hearing this concept of digital transformation coming up over and over again, and, um, and really sort of dug into, well, what is it? 
you know, why, what's driving this idea that these companies need to transform digitally? And what are the elements that enable that transformation? And it really, it came down to sort of several things. One is um, uh, big data, this idea that, you know, high, lots and lots of data being collected now by many, many different sensors and, and other uh, systems. We obviously moved to cloud computing. So uh, the cost of computing, um, both in terms of um, IOPS and storage dramatically decreased. We have this notion of this internet of things, which again is uh, driving a ton of data through sensors that look at and, and evaluate and, and capture virtually all the things that we do. And then finally, the, the rise of machine learning, which is um, algorithms that could now be, that could now operate at scale and uh, be able to process this data. So the, the big transformation is really, I, I, I kind of redacted down into something pretty simple called real time, which is that we can no longer operate in the old traditional model of, um, of we would generate a transaction, we would capture that transaction in let's say a relational database through an application. And then we would uh, we'd run those transactions through an extract, transform and load process. We'd put it into a analytic system. We would then run some analytics against that to tell us what happened. And a week or so later, we would figure out, oh, well, Bob was in the grocery store shopping for some bread. And uh, why don't we send them an email suggesting that there's a coupon for Dave's breads. And uh, maybe we can get Bob to, uh, to buy Dave's bread next time he comes into the store. Well, that, that isn't the way things need to operate. Now we have these mobile computing devices. We need to get a hold of Bob when he's actually in the bread aisle and target him through using beacons, using point of sale data, and allowing companies to be able to give him the right offer at the right time at the right price. So that is an example of digital transformation where, where everything's kind of always on, always needs to be processed, and we have to effectively overhaul all the systems that have ever been developed previously and replace them with these new real-time systems. And this is affecting all companies at all levels at global scale. So that's the, you know, I think the, the, what's driving the success of the company is really um, that, um, those com that confluence of the uh, big data, cloud computing, internet of things, machine learning, all to solve these digital transformation problems. So that's the, the first thing. It's a big, large, thorny, difficult problem. And it's big enough. It's about a $250 billion uh, TAM. So it's big enough and worthy enough of solving. The second thing that's led to our success is that it's not an overnight success. It took about 10 years and about a billion dollars to create the technology platform uh, that has allowed us to build the applications either with our customers, or again, as I explained earlier, build a suite of off-the-shelf um, applications that allow you to solve this. Um, and to solve this, these issues, uh, really requires an end-to-end -end enterprise AI platform. And so what is that? Well, you have to be able to ingest any type of data, whether it's structured, unstructured, or semi-structured. So that's the first problem you need to solve. The next problem you have to solve is, okay, you got to store that. We store it into something that we had to build called a unified federated data image. You can also call it a data lake. And um, 
And now you have to be able to then apply machine learning against all of that data that's been stored. And so we had to develop a whole suite of different machine learning modeling tools to do that. Um, and also because all the companies and the organizations we sell to already use a variety of different products, we had to support all those products, right? It can't just be completely proprietary and, uh, we, and we can't just force everybody to adopt our technology. We have to fit in to the existing uh, uh, groups and organizations that we work with. Yeah. And then um, I've, you know, you've done all that and just to reach the ability to prototype, there's still no economic value uh, to a company using these technologies yet. The only economic value that can be realized is when those are actively deployed into commercial um, deployments. And so you have to be able to activate those models through applications. And, um, and until you do that, all you've done is generated a substantial amount of, of expense and, and prototyping. So until you can do those four things, you don't have an end-to-end -end enterprise AI um, platform. And we had to build all of that in order to be able to go after and solve the problems that we're solving. So that's the second big thing that we did. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we had to create a category for this. We had to, we had to, to label the category, define the category, and then um, make people aware of this category, this category being called enterprise AI. And so we had to invest substantially in thought leadership. We had to write a book and multiple books, conferences, work with the media, create a bunch of educational content so people could learn about what this stuff is. And then, of course, we had to supply um, companies or uh, that were looking at this or, and continue to look at it with success cases. You know, if you're a fan of Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm, Jeff would tell you that to get across that infamous chasm, you need to be able to demonstrate to the bolus of the market that others have gone before you. Most companies are pretty skeptical. Most companies are very hesitant to use new technology. They want to know somebody else went before them. And so it's really those three things. You know, if I take a look at what has been able to, um, to really launch us over the, the last couple of years, it's really um, those three elements that have driven our success. Yeah, so that, that, that sounds like big thorny problem, big market, confluence of a lot of technology and secular winds. And I think something you didn't mention, I'll mention for you and having known you for the year, over the years, relentless execution, which you, Tom, and others know how to do better than anybody I know which is what's really allowed C3 to go from this sort of go to scale to beyond scale mode, as you call it in your book. Talking about your book, you've written a book on this. It's titled Traversing the Traction Gap that provides this prescriptive how-to guide for startups to succeed. So for our audience, can you summarize what are the core ideas behind traversing the traction gap and what made you write that book? Sure. So... Um, in a moment of horrible weakness, um, one of my good friends, Jeffrey Moore, said, hey, I needed to write a book on my experiences because I, I, I was having pretty, cons pretty good success as a venture investor after being in the operating, on the operating side for many years. Um, and so um, companies that were just ideas when I was the investor, so Marketo was just an idea. A uh, company that recently sold to Salesforce called Velocity was an idea. Doximity, which just filed for its IPO, was an idea. C3 was just an idea. So 
Um, the I took a lot of what I learned from pretty smart people like Larry Ellison, like Tom Siebel, et cetera. And um, I took a lot of those those um, ideas and I used them to make uh, my investments in venture capital for which I had real really no background when I began. And those ideas and those processes um, that I use to evaluate companies to make an investment, evaluate market opportunity, and then eventually to, um, you know, to scale those companies, uh, I began to realize that, that while there are really a lot of very smart people making investments, um, you know, I'll use the term Sand Hill Road. It's now much bigger than Sand Hill when it comes to venture capital. But um, the a very a lot of smart people. Um, if you take a look at the actual successes of of companies that they invest in, you know, around eighty five or ninety percent of them fail. And I really, after after being relatively successful with the investment that I had made, you know, I had some failures, just like it, like most investors, but for the most part, successes, I realized there was a pattern to those successes. And I began to identify what those were and to build a model for myself in terms of making the investment and then also an operational model. So that way, once I made the investment, I could work with the team and we could work together in terms of going from really, really small. And most of the things that I invested in were, again, just ideas. They, there was, you couldn't use your MBA uh, from a really great school to do any analysis of these companies because there was literally no market per se, no product, uh, no revenue, no team. So given all of those factors, how, why was it that I was having pretty significant success where, where most of these really well-known firms weren't, or those firms were waiting until there was demonstrable evidence of traction with those with the company, a startup, and making an investment then. And I didn't think of that as really being venture capital. You know, that seemed to me sort of early stage banking. I mean, once you get to a point when the, when you can sort of see the trajectory of the company in terms of company acquisition, product delivery, repeatable sales processes, I mean, at that point, it becomes relatively straightforward, not simple, but relatively straightforward to do some projections around the success of that company. And, you know, many very famous venture firms actually wait until those, um, those, th- those data are available to, to process before they'll make an investment. The idea of investing at just ideation, you know, they'll do it from time to time, but for the most part, um, those are with people who have previously been successful um, or have some very unique technology that they've developed and can, and can adequately explain what they're doing. So the reason I wrote this book was I got tired of watching uh, really smart entrepreneurs walk in through our doors in the in the venture. Um, I was part of two different venture firms, but um, through our the the firm's doors, we would listen to the presentation, and at the end, you know, we'd nod politely to the the entrepreneur. They would exit, and um, people around the room would all say, "There's no way we're investing this." And uh, I said, "Well, why didn't we?" tell the entrepreneur that that we weren't going to invest and you know the answer in many cases was well look we don't we don't know for sure whether it's going to work or not and we don't really want to be excluded you know from the opportunity to participate in a an investment further on 
you know, so I, I said, well, I don't think this is really fair to the entrepreneurial community. That number one. Number two, I realized that a good, I, it, I don't know what the specific number is, but it's well above 90% of all venture capitalists have never personally built a company from ideation to, um, to a billion dollar outcome. And so they sit here and try and pontificate around what an entrepreneur should do. And the truth of the matter is, is that they really haven't personally done it. And I think a lot of times, maybe though, while well-meaning, a lot of the um, a lot of the information or the lot of advice that 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 is given is not necessarily um, the correct advice. So I decided that um, I would quantify and qualify what I had seen and interviewed dozens and dozens of companies, um, CEOs, those that, that had been successful and those that had failed, and tried to develop a prescriptive way to help entrepreneurs think about the problem of going from ideation to scale. You know, and the important part here was to create some common vocabulary that both the investor and the operating executive team could use in order to evaluate where they were and what they needed to do next. And so I, I, I sought out, was there, was there a model I could develop? And so after about a year or two of, of, of creating the model, uh, it really redacted down to several key themes. First, um, there are four elements that every company needs to consider as they go from ideation to scale, which is product, revenue, team, and systems. And I suppose you could find others, but the idea is to not create a Michael Porter uh, tome. <laughs> you know, um, it was to create something easy for people to grok. So product, revenue, team, and systems. And then identify the value inflection points that companies need to, to uh, traverse through in order to create um, value, but to also show that they have ra radically reduced risk to the potential investor. So um, I decided to adopt the vernacular that Steve Blank and, and others have used, this concept of a minimum viable product, um, because people pretty much grok what that is. It's been explained over and over again. I have a little different viewpoint on what on what MVP is, but um, but I decided to adopt the same kind of um, the same kind of, of um, labeling. So the idea of minimum viable category, minimum viable repeatability, and minimum viable traction kind of fit into this chronological um, uh, uh, journey that companies need to go through in order to go from the initial concept to a, a company that scales. And it turns out there's a certain amount of time that you that you're given by the by the investment community to reach these value inflection points there's a certain amount of capital that um, they're willing to provide you and there are um, revenue hurdles that you need to get through and so product revenue team and systems play a different role at, di at different points along this uh, traction gap framework that uh, that i postulated uh, represented the what most startups have to go through it's never quite a, a linear journey it's usually there's things that you get through and you have to repeat but i think these value inflection points their descriptions 
what they are. Um, so minimum viable category, what category are you in? What are the attributes of the category? What's the name of the category? You've got to be able to develop that. You have to reach an initial product release, finally reaching something that Steve and Eric Reese and others call um, the minimum viable category. And I would argue at that point, it's not about product market fit. Um, it's really around market product fit. And the reason why I say it that way is that um, but without a market, there's really no need for your product. And the reason that 85% of all uh, products fail, whether they're part of a, an existing company or they're a startup, is they fail due to no market need. And there's really very little um, due diligence done by the teams the, around this concept of market product fit. If you can get to that point, then you need to reach minimum viable repeatability. You've built the product multiple times and released it. You've sold it multiple times and released it. You've hired multiple people. By now, you're beginning to move from what I would call a PowerPoint company into a spreadsheet company. There are metrics, revenue metrics, gross margin metrics, churn rates, et cetera. This becomes a domain of where the majority of venture capitalists are willing to actually look at your company and make a decision to invest. And then from there, you need to reach this next phase called minimum viable traction, which is that you are now generating significant growth um, and you've been able to demonstrate that over a period of one to two years. And then after that, we call it beyond scale and there's some other elements that come into play there. So this, um, this traction gap framework uh, that I designed and named and, and worked on um, and then wrote this book around is just to be a prescriptive guide for entrepreneurs so they can take a look at, so where am I now? What should I need to be worried about now? And again, there's no pat answer to all these questions that entrepreneurs have. There's no one size fits all book, but this was a way to have common language between the entrepreneurs and the investors that they could use, that we could use, that I have used and continue to use to, um, to describe what I coined as the market engineering, which is that most of these ideas and markets um, don't necessarily um, uh, just happen, that they have to be engineered. And, and so that, you know, thought leadership, storytelling, messaging, positioning and category creation. These are the tenets of market engineering. And it turns out that the startups that, that have gone on to be quite successful tend to be really good at market engineering. They may not call themselves market engineers. They may not have thought of it that way. But if you take a look at the work that they've done, uh, what, they, what they've actually executed, and those, all, those, those five elements that I just described that are part of the market engineering process, these companies tend to be better at it uh, than the, the companies that aren't and, and end up not, uh, not succeeding. So that's what it is. Um, and the motivation was, uh, really, it certainly wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't money because <laughs> you don't make money from books. Um, but it was a way for me to hopefully give back to the entrepreneurial community. Um, it's been fun. I teach, I've taught it at Stanford, at Columbia, Chicago, University of Chicago. HBS and, and other schools, and it's been adopted by by many of them, either not as primary reading, but as maybe um, as uh, you know on the reading list of of material. So um, I feel really good that it's been useful uh, for the you know for the startup community. So that's, that's a, what it is. It's a great book. In fact, definitely would urge our audience to grab a copy, you know, for the summer if they can. Uh, you have 
that sort of rare combination of not just being an investor, but an operator. And you talked about that earlier. So I want to double click on that. And I want to talk about what in your book called minimal viable traction or the MVT phase. So let's just focus on, let's say you're a CMO at a company that's doing five to $10 million in revenue. So you just before the, the, the scaling stage and you need to demonstrate, as you said, sustained growth for four to six quarters. So as a CMO, what should you be doing to prepare the company for scaling its growth? Okay, well, I think this is a great question because I do think that this is this sort of separates the, the winners from from the others. Um, you know, I talked about the four the four pillars um, in this traction gap framework: product, revenue, team, and systems. And it's product, revenue, and team really define the prior value inflection points, minimum viable category initial product release, minimum viable product, and minimum viable repeatability. So those are the, those are those three pillars come into prominence or into play. Um, and at, at each one of those different uh, value inflection points, and some are more important than others. At, at, at MVT or getting to MVT and beyond, it, this is really where systems comes into play. And by systems, I mean, um, the architecture of the systems that you have that will allow the company to uh, quickly absorb um, interest and engagement in, in what you have to offer. So uh, removing a lot of the manual labor out of the process of engaging with people and, um, and handling uh, that engagement as quickly as possible. And this is why um, especially when it comes to marketing, we need to have, be prepared with a system architecture. Um, and that is the, the different technologies that have to be bolted together in many cases. I mean, one of the problems of being, you know, I think in many ways, um, somewhat created a, a monster with, with Marketo as being one of my, my first investments. And um, we did a good job, I think. And I'll, I, the only we part in this for me is I, 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 anointed the right people with the right, with the, with money. Um, but Phil Fernandez, John Miller and Dave Morandi, the founders of Marketo did a phenomenal job transforming um, the industry of what I would call basically party planning into revenue generation. And they taught us all about these things like market, you know, marketing qualified leads and um, lead scoring, et cetera. And, and that marketing should be responsible for revenue generation. So, the reason I bring this up is that um, the unfortunate side effect of, of Marketo uh, and the entire MarTech landscape is that now it's not just six or seven or eight different companies, which is really kind of what it was back in 2006. Today, we've got 8,000 plus. And you look at the Lumascape, you know, there's these all these different technologies that are required in order to prosecute what I would call a contact to cash um, system. So that's from top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel. And then, and then the ability to, to um, recycle uh, people who are interested in what you're doing, but maybe not ready to buy. So there's not just one product or one company that you can yet buy from, you know, you've got, you've got intent data that you've got to prosecute. You have um, conversational um, bots that you need to integrate. I mean, I won't list all of them if you want it. 
I think most people in marketing are well aware of, of the complexity. So you need to have a systems architecture that you design, um, and I would say well before the MVT phase, that says, okay, these are the technologies that we're going to use. And they're, here's where they play at you know, top, middle, and bottom of the funnel. Here's how we are going to bolt them together. And here's how we are going to measure everything as a result. You need to be well prepared before you're trying to scale because you try to, you try to bolt this stuff together in the process of scaling. And it's similar, I would say it's analogous to changing the wheels on a, you know, on a race car uh, while it's moving. Um, you know, it just, it becomes extraordinarily difficult. So I, I would counsel CMOs to focus on uh, system architecture from contact uh, to cash and what the technologies are that they want to use from, uh, from lead enrichment to lead scoring to, um, to automated uh, conversations, you know, on your, on your website through, enterprise uh, level uh, content management, all this stuff needs to be sorted before that. And even though you may not have it all implemented, you should have the blueprint of an architecture either drawn out or at least in your, you know, written out uh, so that way you can, you can build it. Um, failure to do that and you'll find yourself on the wrong side of scaling, which is uh, scrambling. So Bruce, this is, uh... This is great. You talk a lot about the system architecture. In fact, I wrote a blog post on this very topic around the importance of having uh, the right growth stack, right? Uh, for those who are interested, you can check it on our website. Yeah. But let's move that now. So now let's move from a company that was five to 10 million and let's now wants to go to go to scale phase, as you call it in your book. In other words, from say 10 to 100 million. I know these are just rough numbers. So say you're the CM of that company, you built your stack, what is, uh, and you have that team, what is that marketing playbook look like for achieving this growth? And uh, love for you to talk a little bit about what role collaboration, particularly between sales and marketing uh, plays. How is that different during this phase? It's always important, but how is it different in this phase? Yeah, so, I think in order to be able to go from 10 million to 100 million, you are you, you've proven the technology. You've proven that there is at least a market. Not sure necessarily uh, whether you've proven how big the market is yet. Um, but you're you're not so you're not faced with um, existential threat usually at this point. What you're really faced with is how are you going to secure your place as the category leader? One of my favorite books written by Christopher Lockhead is Play Bigger. It does an in-depth analysis of category creation. One of the statistics that he cites, he and the other authors cite, is that uh, 76% of all profits of a category go to the category king or category leader. And so by definition, then that means you wanna be the category leader, whatever that category is, make, hopefully it's large enough. And to do that, this is really where we need to turn to brand. Um, so we may have established the attributes of the category, what it takes to compete in the category, the category and hopefully we are forcing our competitors to compare themselves against us 
not and not us against them. So we have hardened the attributes of the category. Industry analysts are potentially beginning to um, write about you um, that they um, that that the words that they're using are um, consistent with the terminology that you are using. And so this is where I say um, brand investment really comes to the fore. And uh, brand investment is, um, it takes a lot of different forms, but a lot of it is, it comes from things like keynoting at conferences, uh, writing a book that introduces new thoughts, new vernacular into the industry. So that way your CEO or your team is considered to be a thought leader. You know, at Marketo, um, while Phil Fernandez uh, was the CEO, John Miller was really the thought leader. Um, and I think Phil helped to propagate this, um, was the thought leader around next generation marketing. Uh, I think John drafted and wrote a lot of the um, a definitive guide to marketing automation. You know, so there at this point in time, you're really building a following, right? You're building people who you are conscripting into your uh, point of view of how things need to be done uh, differently from a world that used to do things one way to a world that's doing something different. And so the way to do this is really through, again, keynoting at conferences, writing a book on it through um, organic social um, posting, um, out of home and TV advertising um, to the extent that you can that you can afford it. And I would say that at this point, this is really where your investors need to, um, uh, you know, belly up to the table and, uh, and put in a lot of capital in order for you to secure this ownership. So that way you're dominating the airwaves, uh, uh, whether those are digital airwaves or they're, you know, or they're the, you know, the physical airwaves of you driving down the, the, the highway where people see your company, they've heard of you, you're building the air cover. So that way, when your sales organization goes in, hopefully somebody who you're selling to will already have heard about you. Uh, you need to invest in significant content. At this stage, you're still at the $10 million stage. I'd say even up to the 100 and even further because we're still doing this. You are developing new content and it's mostly educational content. You're teaching people uh, uh, and so they can learn about what you're doing, what they could be doing. This is less about selling and more about teaching. Um, you've, you're getting customer testimonials. This is all about what, what Jeffrey Moore would say. If you want to get across that chasm, you need, you need um, the bridge material are references. And the digital references are customer video testimonials, for example. And those are hard to do. A lot of companies at this phase, they still don't want to tell anybody what they're doing because they view it as competitive weaponry. They don't want people to really know what they're doing. So, you know, getting those customers in each industry, company, remember for reference selling, people in companies that you want to sell to are looking for other people in similar companies that is size and the same industry. You know, if you're, if you're in bank or you're trying to sell to somebody in banking and you only have references for people in manufacturing, you know, those don't work very well. So you need to find the, the right testimonials. You need to invest in things like community, 
So you have other people telling your story, other people sharing it. And that, you know, building things in, in B2B, where it might be an enterprise application, you want to start looking at certification. Why? Because then as people look to hire, as companies look to hire for people with your um, with skill sets that are required to run or manage the applications that they're buying from you, for example, you need to um, you need to have uh, a community of people they can draw upon. So um, so these are the things that become very important. You know, training, support um, that are th- these the undercarriage of of the company. And so the playbook really here is around um, demonstrating a brand authority and having enough other people um, sing your praises. So that way you can begin to move into, uh, it becomes far less effort to move into, into, um, into the next account because people have heard of you. So that's, that's really what the, the playbook needs to be at, at, at this phase of, uh, of growth. And, um, and I think where companies kind of go wrong here is, um, is they don't invest enough in this. And, and, and I can tell, because I'll, I'll give you an example because I had been out of, I've, I've been in the venture business for 10, 15 years, hadn't been in, in an operating role for that long, um, or at least the, as long as it uh, wasn't in the CMO job for sure. And, um, and so I took over as a CMO here. And of course I get lots of email, right? I get these, these um, cold call emails from companies. And I feel really sorry for the uh, for the the SDRs or whoever they are. I would assume most of these are sales development reps um, who are sending me these cold call emails. Um, and the reason is that um, we don't really need to do any cold call emails here. Um, we don't have any outbound um, SDR function. Why? Because we're a wash in people interested in what we're doing. We're a wash in people looking at our content. You know, coming to our webinars, you know, I think a lot of people say there's webinar, you know, um, I think uh, waning interest in webinars. Our webinars are well attended. Hundreds of people come um, because they're all educational. And so uh, we don't need an outbound SDR function here because we invest heavily in brand. And as a result, people know who we are, know we do, and are looking for something. That makes it a lot easier to sell to, to, to companies because we're not having to convince them uh, that they have a problem uh, through our, you know, through these cold emails. We're basically responding to their inbound inquiries. And I think this is where companies really need to get to. It's um, uh, if, you're for, if you are trying to constrain your spend and, and putting on the shoulders of an outbound SDR group to create awareness and interest in your company, um, you're gonna have you're gonna have trouble scaling. You really need to invest in these brand activities, and if you don't, um, somebody else will, and you'll either get acquired by that that other company or uh, find yourself um, probably going out of business. So that's that's what I think uh, needs to happen at this stage. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think I think your you know your point about organic or growth or, or, or hand raises are always much more valuable than than cold prospects. You also talked a lot about different tactics that companies can pursue in this phase, uh, whether it's, you know, digital advertising or an analog, et cetera. Uh, Are there, and each one of them have their own metrics. Are there specific metrics that you recommend CMOs track 
at a sort of Uber level, right? And during this go to scale phase. Yeah, you know, um, we've instrument, when I joined, there was no digital marketing function here, which is pretty interesting. Actually, there was, when last time I had been a CMO, there there was no such thing as a digital marketing function. So um, it was it was fun to actually build it from scratch here and, uh, and put into effect all the things that I've talked about in my book or the things that we had originally conceived of at, at Marketo. Um, so the, the metrics, um, one, we wanted to make sure that at least everything that was digital that we tagged, right, that we, that we could track things. And, and we, we actually made it relatively simple, even though we can track almost everything. We, we measure things, real simple things like um, the number of, of new visitors. This is simple stuff. You know, the time on site the conversions, whether those are form fills or downloads, et cetera. And that we compare those, um, those numbers against, we've built some models for the, all of this and we track them. And you know, we've, we've written the, the reports so they generate um, a real simple visual way to see whether we're above, at or below, red, yellow, or green, the targets that we have by campaign. And so, and then we look at these things around whether the top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, or bottom of the funnel um, campaigns uh, to look at. And, and of course, these, these things that people are now understand, they were a new idea with Marketo called nurtures that allow us to um, effectively um, amplify the campaigns relatively cost-effectively through email. But you could look at lots and lots of different things and, and kind of get wrapped around the axle on all the different metrics that are available to you. But I would suggest that these simple ones are, are probably the, um, the best. And we set targets, you know, what do we wanna spend on keywords? What do we want, you know, what's acceptable, what is unacceptable? Get, stop doing these, start doing these. Um, and only by having these reports can you do it. Now, of course, there's lots of technologies that let us do this a lot. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier. The other thing I would say that, that I would spend a lot of time, and I, I do, is um, uh, comparison against competitors. So, for example, I wanted, well, not I, Tom, uh, wanted us to own this uh, and build and own a new category called Enterprise AI. Uh, at, you know, there were very little uh, searches done for that category when I started and, um, and we certainly didn't even rate in it, you know, in terms of um, uh, we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't um, return a lot of, uh, of um, we didn't score very highly in the, in the returns. So we measured this and, and we set about to create um, content to make sure that we did. And we featured enterprise AI as a category. There are a couple of the competitors that are, that are, positioning themselves as uh, enterprise AI. And so we redefined the category in, to say, this is what you have to do. And here's, we provided a lot of content around it. And then we measured ourselves monthly. And so we went from relatively uh, relative obscurity to we own 25, 30% of, of um, the term enterprise AI. And so the value there for us is that one, we pay Google a lot less for our ads because we we are rated high, a lot higher and we show up you know basically quote for free um, when people are looking for that term against competitors who have to pay 
So I would say at this stage, you, know, you need to really look at the category you think you're in and to make sure that people are actually searching for that term, the, the you know, one, two, three words, whatever the category name is, and that you show up as number one, not by paid, but by organic, um, and to adjust your strategy to, to achieve that. And that can be done in a variety of different ways. You know, we, we began with a lot of just pure internally developed organic content that was educational. We propagated it. We measured ourselves, how many people were consuming it, and then and watched monthly as, um, as we grew in, in returns. So I say at this stage, you know, it, this is really important. Um, because in theory, you will have created a new category, you will have named the category, you will provide the attributes of the category, and you want to make sure that you're perceived of as the category leader. Um, and so now at least we have a, um, a, uh, a digital way to, to, to confirm that you either are or you are not. Yeah, and, and I think you're really talking about instrumenting the business and, and tracking all these uh, you know, important granular metric, and the one that I know that you implicitly, you know, would would know and have talked about in the past is revenue, which is really the ultimate true north. Which is, how do you, you know, uh, is the marketing team generating enough pipeline? Is it converting to bookings? Uh, are these customers buying from you again? And, and any thoughts on that? And and particularly the role of sales and marketing during this phase, and how they may want to collaborate differently. Yeah, we're, so I, I wouldn't take what we're doing and necessarily apply it to what you should be doing, whoever is listening, um, because we're, 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 we're definitely um, a different animal. And that is our, our average contract value is around $5 million. Our average TCV is in the tens. So um, we're not your typical SaaS company. We, we are subscription-based. But the, the sales motion, the go-to-market motion is different than a high-velocity SaaS solution, which might have an ACV of 60K. Um, so the, um, what we've done and, and, and what we measure is different. So, for example, um, this, you know, our organization doesn't, isn't really measured by revenue contribution. Um, we're really measured by brand contribution. And um, while we do... Uh, run campaigns, we do measure them, and we do measure the uh, the conversion rates and the the number of sales accepted leads, et cetera. We're um, our compensation, that is the function of marketing here, is is not held uh, to the same account as your you know traditional SaaS company. So, um, I do believe though that it it does make a lot of sense because we work quite a bit. You know, obviously, for years with Marketo and then with other companies in that same, in that same, um, in adjacencies to market automation, um, I would say that the 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 best practice is obviously for marketing to try to generate about twenty five percent of the of some future quarter pipeline. Well, it doesn't have to be future quarter; it depends on what your sales cycle is. If you have a one month sales cycle, it could be in quarter. But basically. Um, making sure that the marketing is generating 25% of the pipeline. I think that's pretty industry standard for B2B. Um, the, um, 
the amount of conversions, et cetera, is also important. What we do is, you know, this is pretty old school, is we just talk to sales. You know, we talk to the sales organization. We, we talk to the field. Um, we find out what campaigns are working, what aren't, uh, what type of uh, content that we've developed uh, for them to use and distribute is working. And then we do less of what isn't and more of what is. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and while metrics and measurement and et cetera are, are all critical, you know, some just good old fashioned um, phone calls can sometimes give you faster insight into what into how to, to help them be successful. So that's what works for us. Yeah, straightforward, but hard to do. Final question, Bruce. Um, how does the traction gap framework apply to larger companies, say, those with hundreds or billions of dollars in revenue. Yeah, um, so this is actually interesting. I'll turn back again to my, my good friend, Jeffrey Moore. He wrote a book um, a few years ago called Zone to Win. And that book was developed in conjunction with Mark Benioff at Salesforce. And I believe Satya Nadella at, um, at Microsoft. But I, I, I know for a fact that the, the problem that he set out to solve was um, effectively how do you introduce new products into a company that already is generating typically hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars from you know, a, few, uh, a few product lines? And so Jeff uh, redacted the problem into a, a real simple visual concept. And that is that they're thinking, you know, thinking in your mind, draw a square and then four quadrants. And in the upper right-hand quadrant, he called that the performance zone. That's the, all those products that are generating the preponderance of revenue for a company. And then underneath that, the quadrant in the lower right-hand quarter, he called the productivity zone. And these are all the systems in place, the people in place designed to make the performance zone successful, finance, accounting, marketing, et cetera. And, um, and the problem that he described, he said, he goes, typically what will happen in a company is a new entrant comes into the marketplace and the performance zone gets, you know, whacked by losing a deal or losing several deals going, well, who the heck is this company? What, what do they do? How come we're losing against them? And typically what the company does is it reaches into their skunk works organization, labs, you know, et cetera, whatever you want to call them. And it goes, wow, we got a couple products down here. Let's just take those products and throw them into the performance zone. And I think, Rahul, you'll remember a couple of these, maybe at Siebel, <laughs> we, we might have done this with. Um, and, uh, and so what happens is that uh, those products aren't ready to be handled by the, by the performance zone. The contracts are, are the business model, the positioning, all those things that are needed to be successful, they're thrown into the existing sales organization, and, and then there's little traction gained. Um, so what Jeff postulated was, well, let's create... Um, these two new zones. In the, in the lower left corner, we call it the incubation zone, which is your labs, your, um, your skunk works. And then in the upper left-hand quadrant, we call it a transformation zone. And the idea is really simple. We take people from finance, sales, marketing, service, support, et cetera. They're a virtual group. They come together when a new product is going to be announced and um, they take it out of the incubation zone. They create the right contract, the right pricing, positioning, et cetera. And then when it's ready, they transfer it into the performance zone. Okay, so I told you all that to now tell you this. The incubation zone is, effect is effectively a startup, and it's in that incubation zone that the traction gap framework is designed. 
um, and can be used. It's naming the new category. All those elements that I just described are, are, um, uh, are in that particular um, in that particular zone. And, um, and so all of the principles that I describe in the Traction Gap Framework are relevant for companies needing to bring into market a new product offering. So that, that is different, uh, you know, radically different from, from what they may have offered in the past. So I think this is where it can really be useful. Um, and the, to the degree that, that companies um, process the, the create the, a new product into the market using Jeff's zone concept and the principles in the traction gap framework, I think can make them su successful because the truth is, is that uh, 85% of all products fail, whether those products are startups, which are typically single product um, organizations or uh, new products that existing companies are, are bringing to market. So I just say the evidence, the, the, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that uh, what companies are currently doing uh, doesn't work. And that if you want your product to be successful, I think following these guidelines uh, can at least help to, to, um, to mitigate the failure rates. Yeah, and uh, I know that you wrote uh, a great blog post on this, which uh, I'm sure our audience can find by searching for it. Uh, it's on Medium. Uh, and I, I want to thank you, Bruce, uh, for sharing your ideas, your experiences with our audience. For those of you that want to uh, learn more about the Traction Framework, you can uh, definitely read Bruce's book and find him on the usual social channels. Bruce Cleveland, thank you so much for your time. You bet. It's great being with you. If you like this episode of the CMO Stories podcast, please subscribe and give us a like or comment wherever you listen. And if you want to reinvent your approach to marketing and turn marketing into a revenue driver instead of a cost center, visit our website at fortella.ai. Thanks for listening.